I had the immense pleasure of interviewing the legendary author, Jewel Parker Rhodes, a few months ago. And we really had this great connection. And since then, she has been amazing. She wrote an essay for We Found Time, wefoundtime.com, along with her amazing daughter, also an author, Kelly McWilliams. And I wanted to re-release Dr. Rhodes's episode today um, Uh, in the midst of the hashtag Blackout Tuesday and Black Lives Matters week of trying to amplify Black voices. And I would amplify... Jewel Parker Rhodes' voice, no matter what color she was, I think her voice, her book, Black Brother, Black Brother, and her other many, many, many books, and her whole approach to life is just amazing. And she knows what a huge fan of hers I am. Um, And I'm excited to re-release this episode in case any of you missed it the first time. And I think it's a really important episode to listen to right about now. I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm so honored to be here today with Dr. Jewel Parker Rhodes. Settle in because this is kind of a long bio because she's such a rock star. Dr. Jewel Parker Rhodes is an award-winning and best-selling author of many books, including her most recent, Black Brother, Black Brother. Her books include Ninth Ward, which was the winner of a Coretta Scott King honor, Sugar, winner of the Jane Addams Children's Book Award, and Ghost Boys. Both the hardback and paperback editions of Ghost Boys are New York Times bestsellers. Ghost Boys is also an IndieBound bestseller, number one kids indie next pick, and ALA 2019 Children's Notable List pick, among others. And I have to also say, it's a Walter Award, E.B. White Read Aloud Award, and Children's Choice Book Award. Dr. Rhodes has also written many award-winning novels for adults, like the American Book Award-winning Douglas's Women, plus two writing guides and a memoir called Porch Stories, A Grandmother's Guide to Happiness. Her adult literary awards include the American Book Award, the National Endowment of the Arts Award in Fiction, the Black Caucus of the American Library Award for Literary Excellence, and the Penn Oakland slash Josephine Miles Award for Outstanding Writing. When she's not writing, Dr. Rhodes visits schools to talk about her books and teaches writing at Arizona State University, where she is the founding artistic director and chair of the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing. Originally from Pittsburgh, she received a BA in drama criticism, an MA in English, and a doctorate in arts in English creative writing from Carnegie Mellon University. She currently lives in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Rhodes. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am so delighted. And hello to all the moms. And being a mom for me is the best job next to writing that I ever had. It's a pleasure. Okay, I have to hear more about that. So why 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 is it the best job? People have all sorts of views on motherhood. Why the best job ever? You know, actually, well, I always wanted to be as much as possible a good mom. When I was about eight months old, my mother left the family. And she didn't come back until I was in the third grade. And then, you know, by the time I was 15, she was kicking me out of the house and I was on my own. So that's the trauma. So to be a good mom was an important goal of mine. And I remember when I was pregnant with my daughter, Kelly, everyone said, oh, this will take away your time. This will ruin your writing career. You know, they had all these negatives. And in truth, though I had written a draft of a novel, it wasn't quite ready. I found that motherhood, in fact, made 
so much more sense in terms of my entire life, that my emotional depth grew, my intellectual depth grew, and sometimes just writing and seeing my little baby in her cradle, it had a new purpose that I was like, my career was bigger than myself. And so I actually told my daughter when she was having her baby, and everybody said, oh, your, your writing career will go out the window. And I says, no. Baby center and focus you, children do that, that make it all wonderful. And I had this policy that when I was writing as the kids were growing, that I would leave my office door open. And I actually got this from Toni Morrison because there's a picture of her trying to write and edit at Random House and her children are toddling and you know, crawling along the floor. And so my theory was that any task of mine writing that couldn't withstand the interruption of a child, then the idea wasn't good anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that my that the, the kids would come in and in and out. And true enough, the, the ideas that really had legs would stay with me and I would continue writing them. And when I was also writing, I would pretty much write when the kids were, you know, asleep, you know, not all the time, but sort of I would go toward the latter hours because I really enjoyed so thoroughly my son showing me ants, my daughter talking about, you know, let's make a butterfly garden or taking shaving cream and putting it in the sink and letting them make a mess. In those days, we didn't have all the fancy things that kids could play with. Probably shaving cream wasn't a good idea, but we did it anyway. So I was absolutely thrilled and feel that it's a great, oh, I'm going to cry. I feel it's a great gift in terms of increasing, and I'm being just selfish here, but in terms of increasing my humanity, being a mom is the best thing that ever happened to me. So for that, I thank my children and I try to show my thanks every day. Oh, that's so beautiful. Also, by the way, I have my kids play with shaving cream a lot. In fact, I keep, yes, I keep it in the shower, obviously. And every so often they say, can we play with it? And I decide whether or not I can deal with the mess after. And if I have the time to deal with a mess, then I say, go for it. And they put it all over. We have a glass, uh, you know, like a glass door. So they put it all over and then they draw pictures. And I can get a lot of stuff done, by the way, while they're sort of in the shower with the shaving cream and I'm on the outside. You make me so happy. I thought that was way out of style because my kids are now in their 30s. So I feel really good. Go shaving cream moms. <laughs> I mean, maybe if your kids are in their 30s, they should not still be playing with shaving no, cream. <laughs> okay, good. All right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like the shower is like the best resource for a parent because if your kids are in there playing, I take all the plastic toys I probably shouldn't have, I'm sure it's not PC to have plastic toys. But anyway, the little figurines that we have, and I throw them like a bucket of them in the shower and they stay in there for a long time. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, my granddaughter, who's three, had her very first shower yesterday. My daughter was saying she was just so tired and she was like just too tired to do a bath. Her husband's been working like, you know, 12, 14 hour days. So she said, let's take a shower. And she said, Clara was a little scared at first, but she then went in because her mom said, well, I'll give you a sucker afterwards. But no, which was probably, but she went in and apparently she loved it. And Clara said, showers tickle. And she's laughing the whole time. So that's, yeah. So she's now going to have her adventure. And I'll remind Kelly to try some shaving cream. You should write write a children's book about it called Showers Tickle. That would be funny. 
Oh, Zibby, that'll be great. If And if I do, I'm going to dedicate it to you and your kids. Okay. <laughs> and, hey, that'll be so much fun. But you're right. Showers tickle. That's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's do it together. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> So that was so much amazing information. I feel like I'm satisfied enough I could just get off the phone. No, I'm kidding. I just finished your recent book, Black Brother, Black Brother, which was obviously so well-written as everything you write is. It had some really interesting themes. And I just wanted to find out what made you write that book? What gave you the idea? Tell listeners what it's even about. And let's talk about it. Okay. Black Brother, Black Brother is about two biracial boys, same mom, same dad, but one is fair-skinned and one is dark-skinned. And the one who is dark-skinned experiences colorism, experiences prejudice and bias, and he is bullied and he's called, oh, you're the Black Brother, Black Brother, you know, which annoys him to no end and also is discriminatory. It's actually based on the raising of my two kids. My husband of 30-some years is a tall Norwegian Scotch-Irish guy, and our daughter is fair, and our son is brown. And particularly when they turned about 12 years of age, particularly for my son, the world started treating him differently. And he learned that there were some people, even though he we had talked about it, he had never really experienced it in a visceral way, that some people saw him and would see him as a threat, would see him as a possible thief in a store, that he'd had to be extra careful while, you know, driving if he was stopped by the police. And it really just rocked his world. World, you know, because we had grown up in such an equitable home. So it's based on my personal experience. And then it's also based on the school to prison pipeline. When I was writing Ghost Boys, I learned that children of color, even starting at toddlers in preschool, were suspended disproportionately to white kids, sent to juvie hall or prison disproportionately to white kids, and were punished more harshly pretty much all across the United States. And in fact, the zero tolerance policy that some schools have literally makes it that if a child talks back, they can go to juvenile detention. And when you go to juvie, the uh, criminal justice laws are completely different and that the judge has an incredible amount of power because now you're considered a delinquent and the judge can decide, yeah, we're going to let you stay in a juvie for six months. So Black Brother, you know, Dante, you know, he slams down his backpack because he's been accused of something he didn't do, and they cart him off to jail. Dante has privilege. He's rich. His mom's a lawyer. His dad is in computer sciences. And so they're able to fight this. But he actually goes to the courthouse and he makes the association that if you're impoverished, how much more difficult it is to fight this kind of zero tolerance school to prison pipeline. So the third thing that my book is about, because all my books are complicated. They read, I hope, well, but have lots of ideas. And the other third thing was that I was shocked when I was an adult and discovered that Alexander Dumas, the author of The Three Musketeers, Man with the Iron Mask, The Count of Monte Cristo, was in fact a black man, French Haitian, and that his dad was called the Black Count and was the famous general of Napoleon's army. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, if 
all the movies and television shows about the musketeers that showed them as also as people of color, that might have been another sport that, you know, young people would have gone into, you know, and we wouldn't see it as a kind of white aristocratic sport. So how options get closed down when we don't pay enough attention to diversity. Wow. So... <laughs> And I could still go on, girl, but anyway. No, I, you can still go on. Um. Uh, I, I love hacking. My, my books come with so many ideas, Zibby, and they're important to me. But the big thing is not then to write a didactic novel, to write a novel about family, friendship, you know, brotherly love, self-esteem and affirmation. Uh, but I do like the idea that my book's, teach. And in a sense, they always have an element of historical fiction and that they sort of uplift. And I also like having characters from all kinds of cultures in my books. So in general, I've had Cajun, I've had Creole, I've had Vietnamese, I've had Chinese. And in Black Brother, you know, I make reference to in the neighborhood, there are Pakistanis, you know, uh, there um, are people from India, there are Africans, and two twins who start learning how to fence are from Jamaica. So I, I just love that idea of a mixed blood stew because my grandma told me that everyone is family. She says, we're all kin, or she said, she's she's unfortunately dead. She says, we're all mixed blood stew. So everybody is related, everybody is kin. And this whole idea that color would be a determining factor for someone to discriminate against you has got to stop. Okay, good. <laughs> Pound down our fists. Stop it. Yeah. So I, I don't know if your listeners heard that, but I had pounded my desk. I, I pounded my desk too. We're, we're pounding together. Yes. You can't even see. We're on Skype. <laughs> well, you know, I thought it was interesting in Black Brother how when Dante goes to the police department in the first place, the mother, well, first when his dad shows up and they realize his dad is white, they treat him completely differently than they had when they didn't know that about him. And same as the judge, when they find out that he fences and that his what his family's like, they, everybody has a different impression of him altogether than they did at the beginning. Yes. And yes. that and that his... Go ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and that his mother, um, when she was picking him up at the station, was just so shocked that they wouldn't think to call her. I mean, I think about this with my kid. Like, the idea that something could happen at school and they wouldn't call the parents, they would go right to the police, is so crazy, and yet it's happening all the time. It's it's really hard to believe. Oh, ab- absolutely. It's the most frightening thing as a mom for them not to notify you about the welfare of your child. But actually, when we were raising our kids— For Kelly, people very much thought that I was the nanny and were very dismissive towards me. And then when my husband was walking with Evan, they were confident that he was such a great guy because he adopted a black son, that that couldn't be his son. I mean, we even had vacations in Hawaii, say, where the kids would go and make lays and adults would tell them at the laymaking session that they couldn't possibly be brothers and sisters. And the kids would come back to us and just crying, you know, and then mama had to go on the war path. It's really, it's really amazing. And that's another thing which I don't go into that, that I think children, biracial children have to sometimes deal with. And I didn't speak because I don't know enough about it from my children's point of view, but that every day Evan knows 
uh, my son, that society gives him his dad privileges that they don't give him. And a dear friend of mine, she had there was robberies in the neighborhood and they have in fact a black son that they adopted and the police you know wanted to explore investigate their home and she thought it was necessary that she tell them i have a black son in the bedroom because she was afraid he would be in danger if the policeman just entered the house and saw this young black kid so that the sort of mental toll that it takes on everyone is just horrible and and I love, Zibby, how you said the way that people interpret it, interpret Dante. You're a- absolutely right. And last night in my ethnic literature class, my student said, well, people interpret you in a certain way that has nothing to do with really who you are. And we've got to stop that. And we interpret you more positively if you're rich, if you're so-called have degrees and educated. When actually my grandmother, who never finished third grade, was the most brilliant person I knew, you know, and we interpret you if you are of a different skin tone. And we do that for religion and gender and all kinds of things. And it's really a sad commentary because, you know, Martin Luther King said it should be the content of your character. And yet it's so hard for us to live that way. So what can we do? Well, I think that's why I'm a middle grade writer. I think that middle grade kids have such empathy, such wondrous hearts, and they are growing up in a time when there are more positive reminders of diversity that there's that we that we have made progress in you know our civil rights and they've had you know friends of different colors different you know religions different classes and my books remind them or I hope it reminds them to keep that to not like become cynical and lose it say in high school or in college to remind them that yes you are on the right track and that's why very often and well not very often but in my books it's generally the kids who are smarter than the adults <laughs> that the kids you know even in ghost boys when the police officer you know shoots a young black boy it's the his daughter his white daughter who's who is able to say dad you know i still love you but you did wrong. And I think that critical thinking that I try to remind kids about is what they need. So they don't wake up one day and they are just following family tropes, cultural tropes, you know, unthinking, unconscious bias tropes, you know, that they stop and think and remember, oh, no, this is about how I choose to live. And life is always better with all different kinds of friends. I would pound my fist again if you could. <laughs> Love that. Amazing. Um, so just to go back, so you, when you grew up, you said your mother had left your family. You had gone through this trauma. Is that what prompted you to start writing? And did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Great question. I would say that when my mother left, it spurred my imagination One, I thought I was responsible, so I would escape through my imagination, and I used to hide in the closet buried underneath all the winter coats (laughs) and and just sort of like daydream, or I would lay in bed. So 
I would, and I would also like stare in other people's windows or cars that were driving by trying to imagine what their lives were like. But I started writing as soon as I became a chapter reader. And so particularly around the third grade, I wrote my very first short story called The Last Scream, which I still have. <laughs> and I read it to all my fellow classmates. And I was really hooked by that connection between writer and reader or writer and audience. But though I wrote always after that, poetry, bad poetry, stories, starts of novels. I never thought I could have a career as a writer uh, because I never read a book by a person of color or even a non-American or British writer at all, ever. So I didn't know Black people wrote books. And even when I was in college for undergraduate, master's, doctor of arts degree, I was never assigned a book by a person of color. And one day I was walking in the Carnegie Mellon University Library and on the shelf they had a book called Corregidora, New Fiction, which was written by Gail Jones, who is a black author. And it was like a revelation when I read it. Wow, black women write books. And I literally changed my major that week to English and started writing. In my class, I was the only person of color. So when I wrote my stories, my classmates would say, why didn't you tell me your characters were black? And I'd say, well, why don't you tell me your characters are white? But I realized then that I, too, had learned to read white unless people told me the characters were of color. And I went on a mission to write my stories and then came of age in terms of the university, in terms of black studies, you know, Chicano studies, you know. And so it was a great time. But I almost missed my calling simply because I never saw writers of color. I was never offered that. And I was certainly not given a book in an educational system that showed anybody who was non-white. It's so funny how things have changed. I mean, when I went to college, I took a whole class of just African-American literature. I mean, it's, it's like you don't even think that, that it's not that long ago that it, it, you couldn't even find the books. It's, it's really crazy for me to think about that. It is. And Zibby, actually, to put it in context, I was in my late 20s and now I'm in my mid 60s. So I was in my late 20s when they were just starting African-American studies programs. And when I was coming out looking for work as an assistant professor, I wanted to be a writing teacher. But everybody wanted me to be, you know, an African-American studies person. But I hadn't studied that. But I did on my own study it. I didn't study it within the can within the university because they didn't offer it. So, in fact, I eventually went on to become a professor of African-American studies and creative writing. So a lot of us, that first generation professors who taught African-American literature, we were self-taught hmm. and then started creating the degrees. Isn't that cool? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then when I was a little girl, we had Dick and Jane. I bet you don't remember Dick and Jane, who had the nuclear family, the little dog named Spot, and the picket fence. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, that didn't look familiar to me either. I mean, who are these, like, yeah. blonde people with the little house and the fence? I mean, I live in New York City. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, everything. Yes. <laughs> I mean, everybody's life is different. It kind of makes me wonder, what classes are my kids going to be offered in college that I didn't get, like, what Literature will they be exposed to that I wasn't and that I'm missing out on now or, you know, what's going to come up in the next 20 years? 
Isn't that amazing? That's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> well, have a book. Keep, keep a book club with your children. And I say that to all moms and all the dads because my son and I, we now have a book club. So all his friends are like, you know, 30, you know, 31, 32. And we talk on the weekends and each of us gets to pick a book. And it's been the most refreshing thing ever because they're sharing their ideas and I'm sharing my ideas. And it, I just love it. So whatever your kids are reading 20 years from now, join a book club with them or make a book club and talk to them about it. And then you can tell them, oh, well, have you read? <laughs> and you can pull out one of your favorite books that from African-American literature, say. Wow. That's a great idea. I don't know if my kids would ever want to do that with me, but <laughs> maybe, maybe some of them would. <laughs> I'm shocked that my son's friends want to do a book club with me, but we have a great time talking and I'm so privileged. I mean, if you were my kids' mom, they would want to do a book club with you, too. <laughs> yes. yes. I want to do a book club with you. You should just, like, conference me in. That sounds fun. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Are you doing – you must be writing more books. So what do you have coming up? Well, I do have a picture book that I've been working on for a long time. And book, picture books are extraordinarily difficult to write. So I'm hoping I'll be able to do it. But in terms of a middle grade book, I'm actually writing about climate change and the wildfires. To me, living in California, being in the West, also seeing what's happening in Australia, you know, having Greta get, you know, nominated as, you know, the teen climate activist. I really want to talk about that. But also, I went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to give a talk. And Jackson Hole, Wyoming is predominantly a white community. And in the audience, in the back row, were a group of Black kids. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And it turns out that they were part of a project that's based in D.C. called City Kids, where they take young city kids, oftentimes kids of color, and they take them out into the wilderness, you know, so that they get a chance to experience it. And they do it for multi-years. And so by the time they become high school students, they're then mentoring middle grade students. And so also based on that, I wanted to talk about how our city kids are starved for nature, you know, and also when I go visit the national parks, to me, this is a, a great tragedy. You see little diversity in national parks. It's it's just amazing. You know, it's the Grand Canyon, Yosemite. I mean, the, the lack of diversity for our public treasures is just incredible. But myself, I, I never went to a public park or I mean, a national park when I was a kid, or I never learned how to swim when I was a kid. I just lived in the city when I was a kid. I didn't know there were forests. And so I want to talk about the healing of nature. And then also about what happens when with climate change or irresponsible activities, we make situations where we're burning up the very thing that is so good for our souls. Wow. That sounds amazing. I can't wait for that. I don't know whether it's going to work. It's going to work. I, I'm going to oh. put money on that. <laughs> Debbie, you're so wonderful. Thank you. I, so I'm going to call you whenever I'm feeling insecure, which I do feel a lot. And I guess maybe this answers your question earlier a little bit better, writing for children. I always wanted to write for children because I wanted to be able to them to see a book that represented their diversity and their wonder because I needed such books when I was a child. 
Even though I read about white authors, I learned empathy, humanity, you know, books are books are books and they're wonderful, you know. But I am writing for the child of color. You just have to wait till she's a junior in college, you know, to see another character of color. But to me, books kept my hope alive, kept me from being bitter, kept me from being closed off from the world and healed me in a way. So to write for a child to me is the highest honor possible. So even when I started writing and I wrote like seven, say, adult books, I'd always say to my agent, but I want to write for children. And so I kept practicing to become good enough, I thought, to be able to write for children. And the day that Hurricane Katrina hit, I had an adult novel about New Orleans get published that day. And it was really traumatizing. And then two weeks later, my publisher sent me to New Orleans for book tour. What? And I do book tour, but it's, there's, you know, basically it's a, it's a devastated community and town. And that's when I knew I had to try to write about the children who had to survive Katrina and the animals that had to survive Katrina and talk about their resilience. And that was when my middle grade career was born. And I finally felt felt ready. So I am living my best life now. And the thing about being a woman, about being a mom, we go through all these marvelous stages from, you know, when our kids, well, you know, pre-pregnancy, being pregnant, which I love, having the toddlers, the baby, you know, going up the whole chain and then being, you know, an older mother. But it's, it's like, the stages that I've gone through just as a person are just amazing and it just keeps getting better and better. And I think that's such a cool gift that we have as moms. So my writing career in terms of me doing precisely what I wanted to do happened later. So if you ever get impatient moms with what you're doing or not doing, don't. It's just like a symphony. Your life is a symphony and it has different movements and all will come to fruition. Wow. Thank you. That's fantastic, fantastic advice. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for sharing everything. And I hope I get to meet you in person. You're such a special woman and I wish there were bazillions of you out there because you're spreading such a great message and being so inclusive and uniting. And I think that's really what we need right now. So it's really wonderful. Well, I think you're amazing. And I hope to meet you too, Zibby. And I'm going to get offline and we should think about doing that tickle book showers tickle together i'm in and thank you for your <laughs> podcast and your service and keeping books alive for everyone love you love you bye you've been listening to moms don't have time to read books with zibby owens please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 